Hello, this is Up Talk from Chatelaine. I'm your host, Rachel Giza. Welcome to our pilot episode. And you know what? We're just going to step right into it. The thing about shit is it's like the most fertile stuff. <laughs> it's incredibly fertile. Like, actually, it is. Literally, it's fertile, you know? And so plant a seed there and let it grow. Mm-hmm. Advice giver extraordinaire Cheryl Strayed. She's the best-selling author of Wild and also the tough love sage behind Dear Sugar. We'll talk about radical empathy, the limitations of monogamy, and negotiating the two Cheryl Strades. That's coming up on Up Talk. But first, the debrief. Hillary has done it. The Associated Press is reporting that Hillary Clinton has clinched the Democratic nomination to become the first woman to lead a major party White House bid. The highest, hardest glass ceiling has been cracked. But did the road to get here have to be this hard? And Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, Canada's first lady of song, at a press gallery dinner this past weekend, she poked fun at all her controversies, her nannies, her staffing issues, her fashion sense, and her singing. We'll talk about the meaning of Sophie. Plus, is the apocalypse near? An X-Men movie billboard featuring Jennifer Lawrence's character being strangled has sparked some complaints. Joining me to debrief the week that was, Naila Kalita May is a professor of theater and performance at the University of Waterloo. Hey, Naila. Hi. And Supriya Devetti is a Toronto-based political commentator. Hello, Supriya. Hi. Okay, Hillary, the big news. According to the AP, she has officially reached the number of delegates necessary to secure the Democratic presidential nomination. Supriya, how how big is this? This is pretty much as as big as it gets. You know, in the first time in America's 240-year-old history, we have a female presidential candidate. I I think we're going to hear a lot of detractors so far saying that, you know, she hasn't clinched it yet because there's still the the superdelegates and the convention hasn't happened and Sanders is saying he's going to take this all the way to the convention. But this is huge and I don't think any should should take away from that. Yeah, Naila? Agreed. I mean, agreed. And it's, I think it's interesting too because Hillary's such a fascinating figure. Yeah. Um, You know, she's a veteran politician. She's been eviscerated by the media and by the public um, and is still fighting and has come out on top. Yeah. And I think that that's like, that's just fascinating to watch. And it's it's going to be the last thing I wanted to ask you guys about was if she goes, she's likely she's going to go up against Trump. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, has run this, you know, he's run this incredibly hateful campaign in so many ways. Naila, what do you what do you think you're going to we're going to see or how this is going to happen? What's going to happen going forward with a, a Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump? Well, we're going to see a level of um, of, a, of an attempt to eviscerate someone's character that we haven't seen before. Mm. Uh, and there is no high road with Trump, right? <laughs> it just doesn't exist. It doesn't yeah. exist. So it's all in the gutter, and it's going to be right. in the gutter until November. And if there's any candidate who's, I think, able to to be in the gutter with him, it's Hillary Clinton. Hmm. She's been through it. Right. She's been through it. And so Hillary welcomes it. Yeah. That she's ready. Yeah. And so I think that's going to be fascinating because he will throw everything and make up the things that he can't fill in, right? Like, this, this is going to be anything that yeah. he thinks might stick. And, uh, yeah, I'm interested to see what she'll do with it. I think she's going to be a lot stronger uh, and a lot more solid than anybody could Yeah, it's kind of interesting that, like, the Monica Lewinsky thing, which is the thing that's probably going to be used against her the most, is maybe the thing that will prepare her the most for what's to, yeah. in, a, in a funny kind of way. It's like it can't get worse than what was slung at her 
And then. then yet she ran for the Senate, right? And yeah. yet she was secretary Secretary of State. And like that's what a people who have been, um, you know, who know what it is to not occupy positions of power, that's what they do. That's what yeah. we do. You get yeah. up and you keep going. Okay, moving on to another another woman in politics, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau. Um, she launched into song again this weekend. Um, and we have a clip of her singing It's All About Me at the Press Gallery Dinner. My brooch, the nanny's my hair. Boom, ba-dum. Sophie Gate everywhere. <laughs> Boom, ba-dum. Cause it's all, oh, oh. It's all about me. <laughs> Boom, ba-dum. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, Sapria, you were actually there at the dinner, so tell us everything. <laughs> like, what happened? I mean, it was... The, so, first of all, everybody was hilarious. Uh, so, I think so, you know, most of the headlines coming out has uh, have been or something along the lines of that Sophie Gregoire Trudeau was the one who really stole the show, and I would have to agree. The fact that she openly came on and was so hilariously self-deprecating and, you know, incredibly self-aware of the way the press has, has framed her, I think was was just great. And the energy in the room, it was well-received by by everybody because I think, uh, you know, the press was uh, taken off guard that, that it was so funny and, and so so refreshing, I, I think, for, for a, a political spouse and for, you know, all three politicians, not just Justin Trudeau, but both Ronna Ambrose and, and Tom Mulcair to be just so poignantly funny like that. Yeah. I mean, this was well. So the song was a riff on the song that she sang. It was she was at an event um, celebrating Martin Luther King Day and she broke into a song. Which was a painful song. It was weird. Painful song. Yeah. Weird and painful. Yeah. Right. Right. It was painful. Yeah. And 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 the perception at the time was, you know, she was an out of touch white lady singing about her personal setbacks at a day that was honoring. Which I don't a think it, it is a wrong criticism to have right. been made right yeah. at the time. Yeah. It yeah. was tone deaf. Right. Like, I feel like the first few months of, of, of Trudeau being in power have, have been a bit tone deaf, right? And so I think they've kind of attempted to right the ship and that, that this event on the weekend really helped to do that. But they, the Vogue um, piece that they had and the picture that they recreated on the weekend that I thought took up in a really smart way. But there are some tone deaf moments and singing in January, that was painful. Like, why am I listening to you mm-hmm. sing your nighttime song to your kids? Yeah. Like, <laughs> why? <laughs> So the Vogue stuff and everything else didn't bother me, but I mean, the Martin Luther King singing yeah. really was just, because to me, it was exactly what you said, out of touch white lady at an event uh, honoring a civil rights hero, which I don't think any black people were actually honored at, at that event, um, which was weird, both on the organization's perspective and just that she would take to song. Yeah. But, you know, I I, I do think they're they're more politically aware and they're more aware that's of... improved. Uh, yeah, of, of the optics. And, and I think, you know, that, yeah. that's only good. But I think just generally with Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, she's just received so much vitriol and criticism, yeah. you know, for 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 being a, a working mom and, and asking for help, you know, in much that she did saying she needed more support staff that I think is a little bit unprecedented in at least a Canadian political yeah. perspective. Does she, I mean, this is something that's interesting about her role and what I kind of grapple with with her. Because on one hand, you know, she's not a politician. She is, you know, she is, she's married to the prime minister. Um, you know, she's sort of trying to figure out a role that's totally not defined here in Canada, um, unlike the first lady role in the U.S. And I'm curious about, like, I feel like on one hand, she gets a lot of flack and attention, and yet we haven't really given her, a, like, a role. Like, is there, it's curious to me to figure out, like, does she matter? Like, 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 does she have meaning and does she matter? I mean, should we be looking to her at all for any kind of cues about women or feminism mm-hmm. or leadership or, or any of those questions? I'm paying attention to her now. Yeah. In a different kind of way, post um, that performance. Uh, it, it demonstrated for me a sophisticated 
um, approach that I hmm. wasn't expecting. Hmm. Uh, an intellectual sophistication that oh. didn't come through, I think, on the campaign trail mm-hmm. and hasn't come through in the media. Mm-hmm. You know, she she went all the way with that performance, um, took on everything and kind of everyone and did it uh, in that self-deprecating way, but with the, in a way that was also really pointing back at the media yeah. um, and that was critiquing them, I think, a bit too. Absolutely. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's what I thought was intellectually sophisticated right. and exciting. I said, okay, I'm not, you've got my attention now. Yeah, yeah totally. And, and uh, you know, just to your, to your earlier question, Rachel, I think ultimately Canadian spouses in the, Cana- in the Canadian political arena should do whatever the hell that they want to do. So if you want a role and you want a policy role and you think you should carve out a certain niche for yourself, then go ahead and do it. And if you want to be in the background and, you know, take on personal causes, much in the same way that, that Lorene Harper did, you know, she was very big on animal welfare issues, then to each their own, man. You do you. Yeah. Yeah. We have to we have to we have to move on. Um, I want to get to this X-Men billboard. Um, uh, It's a picture. It's a it's a it's a shot from the movie. It's Jennifer Lawrence's character Mystique. She's all in blue. Um, And she is being strangled by this sort of evil mutant um, ancient Egyptian that's been brought back from the mutant dead. Um, And the image was sort of put out of context. It was on a massive uh, billboard. And so basically what you have is, you know, a woman being choked likely to death by a man over a highway. Nayla, what was your reaction when you saw the image? It made me think of the porn industry Hmm. um, and some of the research that's coming out about that industry and how um, violence, like violent holds on women Mm -hmm. are just, uh, that those images are being proliferated in an unprecedented way. Uh, And and in many cases, like it's within the context of consensual sex, but that that, that, that that, that imagery has become more accessible. and, and, And some of the studies and work and research around that are thinking about what does that mean for um, like what are the larger social societal implications of that so when I saw that I was like oh yeah okay yeah. right yeah. I see that in there and then I also just thought at what point are some of these uh, corporations going to be more thoughtful about their hiring like hmm. how, how does this get out and nobody nobody yeah. in the room said you know nobody on the email thread was like well <laughs> maybe we should like, at what point like how much more research and how many yeah. more studies and how many more leaders have to come out and say that businesses are more profitable corporations do better organizations do better when they have a wide array of people at the mm-hmm. helm and involved in the process mm-hmm. Yeah. Superior, what did you think? I I saw two mutants. I, you know, had huh. it been Oscar Isaac and Jennifer Lawrence in plain clothes as humans, right. I think the image would have been completely jarring. But for me, honestly, I grew up watching the X-Men cartoon. Uh, I, I saw, I don't I don't think of mutants as being hmm. g- gender binary to, to begin yeah. with. Um, and, and I do get that it's it's a very evocative image and Fox probably chose it on purpose or the studio probably chose it on purpose to, you know, get that sort, sort of reaction. And I agree, Nyla, how did not a single person in that room be like, this could offend some people? And I, I, I get that. But to me, it's just if they're mutants, they're not they're not human. So so that is is the one factor that I think uh, makes it less, I guess, offensive. And then ultimately, also, if we want females leads in superhero movies and in, you know, if we want a female bond out there, then eventually they're going to have to be on movie posters subject to some sort of violence. Otherwise, it's that's just the name of the game. And I guess what I'd say, too, it's not that no one in the room can say like this is offensive or this is problematic, but 
And if they decide to go with it, that's fine. But then stand behind your choice. Oh, totally. Like that's what, yeah, that's right. what I'm getting tired right. of, right? That the corporation does the thing and then they're like, oh, oh gosh, we're so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't mean to. Yeah. So if somebody in the room, if there are people in the room saying this is a mess or this is going to mm-hmm. kind of, you know, push all of these buttons, but we're still going to do it. And here's going, this is going to be our response when we get the backlash. I actually have more respect and interest in that positionality yeah. than this like, oh, oh, oh. Well, because they, <laughs> I mean, so, so 20th Century Fox has now apologized. Yes. And it is removing the, it is removing the billboards now. Um, what great advertising! <laughs> yeah. you know, that's the thing. Everybody's mad, and then everyone has yeah. to take it off, so now everyone's paying attention to it. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. I mean, you know, I hear your points of prayer because I mean, having seen the movie, the thing that's actually kind of interesting about the movie is that the female characters and the male characters do fight side by side, mm-hmm. and so to me, it's in a way in the, the billboard kind of undermining the actual um, kind of gender radicalism within the movie itself. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It would have been amazing to have a poster and like this promotional package that showed both characters actually in combat together, yeah. right? As opposed to this kind of very familiar narrative of like the man dominating the female character. But like if they were both in combat together. As equal adversaries. As equal, oh, love it. As equal adversaries. <laughs> like, how exciting would that have been? They might be looking for somebody new in the in the marketing department yeah. at 20th Century Fox. Um, thank you both so much for being here. Pleasure. Thank you. Naila Kalita May is professor of theater and performance at the University of Waterloo, and Supriya Devetti is a Toronto-based political commentator. I couldn't imagine anyone more perfect as my very first guest than Cheryl Strayed. Her down-to-earth mix of empathy and raw honesty have earned her a dedicated following. She's best known as the author of Wild, her memoir about walking the Pacific Crest Trail alone in her 20s right after she lost her mom. It was, of course, turned into a movie starring Reese Witherspoon. But before Cheryl Strayed became a publishing phenomenon, she was the much-loved and anonymous advice columnist known as Sugar on the literary website The Rumpus. Some of her best columns were then turned into a book called Tiny Beautiful Things right after she publicly came out as Sugar in 2012. Last year, the accidental self-help author, as she likes to call herself, released a collection of her quotes titled Brave Enough. And now, Dear Sugar is back as a podcast. Cheryl and her friend, the writer Steve Almond, draw on their personal experiences to offer what they call radical empathy. Cheryl Strayed, welcome to UpTalk. Thank you. It's a thrill to be here. It's so delightful. Uh, My instinct is to go deep with you right away because I don't know that Cheryl Strayed does small talk. I I get that a lot, actually. (laughs) I mean, I can't go to a party without hearing about people's divorces and their their childhood traumas and the affairs they're having and so forth. So, yeah, whatever you want to share with me. Okay. I'll just turn this into a whole dear, dear sugar little session. therapy yeah, session. Exactly, exactly. So before the sort of enormous runaway success of Wild, you were a novelist, and you were also dear sugar for the Rumpus, the literary website. Um, you called your style of advice radical empathy. What What do you mean by that? Right. You know, it was actually that was a phrase that was given to me. Uh, by Steve Almond, he he referred to the, original the kind of sugar. Yes, the yes. original sugar. So it was written first by this this wonderful writer Steve Almond, who's now my co-host on mm-hmm. my podcast, Your Sugar Radio. And he had been writing this column and not doing it much, and wasn't into it, and people weren't reading it. And he asked me to take it over. And when he saw what I was doing, he said he described it that I was that I was doing radical empathy. And I think that what he means by it and what 
what I try to do as a writer is to, at the root, have compassion for people, which I think is uh, sometimes not the way that we approach people in their darkest moments or the moments when they're struggling, is that we often approach them from a position of judgment. There's this phrase that I learned when I was working with teen girls who had really hard lives, and it was unconditional positive regard that I wanted to to hold each of those girls with unconditional positive regard, regard without, no matter what they told me about what they were experiencing or the decisions they'd made or the things they'd done, that I wasn't going to judge them. Because I think that the minute we feel judged, we shut down. Well, I know that. Yeah. I mean, I know that's what happens to me. Mm-hmm. If I'm telling you something that, that you disapprove of or, you know, I'm going to turn away from you. Yeah. And so I think that to be an advice giver or to be a friend or to be somebody who really is open-hearted in the world, you have to have that kind of radical, by which I mean core, root, empathy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and it, it's interesting because I think about the, the the incredible reaction that people had to Wild and then to and then to Dear Sugar, and you know you know women will tattoo women and men will tattoo you know your words on their body and they'll buy multiple copies of uh, Tiny Beautiful Things and pass it around and quote you. You've kind of taken on this this role as a real inspirational figure to people. What's that like to have that role in in people's lives? Completely bizarre. I I swear to God, it's a complete accident. I never, ever thought that I would be described as an inspirational figure or have anything to do with like the world of what I guess we call self-help. I was recently, I gave uh, a talk at Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul Sessions, and it's me and, like, all these people in the self-help world. And I'm like, I always feel like, I'm like, what am I, you know, which one of these is not like the other, <laughs> you know? And, and yet, now that I th- think more deeply about it, it makes perfect sense because, you know, I, um, I, I don't read self-help books. But I read literature. I turn to literature as when, I, when I'm down and out, when I don't know what to do, when I need to have my faith restored. Honestly, books, when I say books have saved my life, I think about that being true over time at so many different times of my life. You know, as a young girl who was, you know, living in northern Minnesota and I knew that I was smart and I knew that I was ambitious and I knew that I wanted to be a writer, but I wasn't living in any in a kind of community or world that supported that or validated that. And it was like books were my sort of secret portal into the person I actually was as opposed to the person I yeah. pre- was sort of pretending to be. And then, you know, as a college student, when, when the, the, suddenly my whole mind was blown because it was like the, the, the whole world is there and I get to be somebody who makes books and on and on and on, you know, in hard times and in good times. And I know I'm not alone on that. I mean, when you get married, what do you do? You go find a poem to read at your at your <laughs> wedding. And when you die, what do we do? We read a poem at somebody's funeral. We're always turning to literature to tell us who we are. And so I think that 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 all of literature yeah. is self-help. You know, that that I just happen to be through story doing I think what others do in kind of more direct ways when yeah. it comes to um helping people recognize their potential. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't know why I didn't know that people would be inspired by Wild, but I just know that it's true. I know that I, when I was writing the book, I never thought people would 
would find it inspiring. I thought they would find it maybe moving or funny or interesting, but inspiring. It just wasn't on my list. Well, it's interesting because, of course, there's the sort of the retrospective um, take that people have on Wilde. But when you wrote the book, you weren't yet this enormous public figure, Cheryl Strayed. You were writing that in much more obscurity. And so there must be a strange dissonance between the person who wrote the book um, and told that, that sort of lived through that experience and wrote the book, and then the person who now is the writer of that book that did so phenomenally well and, yeah. and spoke to so many people. There's Cheryl Strayed, and there's Cheryl Strayed. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I mean, it's, it's a funny thing. Yeah. Um, and is it, is, do you feel the distinction, or is it sort of merged for you? Is it sort of a natural kind of ebb and flow for you of the two Cheryl Strades? It's well. It's I feel that it's. I mean, I know who I am, and I am also aware that because of Wild, suddenly a whole bunch of people are aware of who I am, and they and they have they've projected onto me their ideas of who I am. They're saying when I do events like, "Oh, I'm so surprised that you're so down to earth," and and after a while, I realized that that a comment like that it it has nothing to do with me. Hmm. It, it has to do with our idea of what, like, a famous writer is. Right. It's about the is, other Cheryl Which Strait. is not down to earth. Right. And right. it's like, you know, what I realized is I had to just sort of shut that yeah. idea, the idea out. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that, 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 that I was going to be defined by other people's ideas of me. Yeah. And simply to just go on being who I am and doing my thing and writing my books. And, and you know, I will, I will say, though, it, it, there's something new about writing a book where you don't get to think only 50,000 people are going to read it, you know, that I do feel some difference in terms of, you know, that next book is going to step onto a stage that is bigger yeah. than than Wilde stepped onto. I mean, you know, like who knows if it will reach the audience that Wilde did. But what I mean is there are people who now are aware of me and waiting for that next yeah. book in a way that I have to admit kind of terrifies me. Well, it, it's, I, I wonder about that too. In terms of in terms of giving advice, I wonder if there was ever a dear sugar experience when someone wrote something to you and you felt kind of humbled by having to answer the question. In particular, I think you wrote a beautiful um, response to a man who was grieving his daughter, and you've obviously had loss in your life. But I think losing a child is mm-hmm. sort of a such a singular kind of loss. What does it feel like to have the authority then to help someone? If someone comes to you that raw and vulnerable and says, I am in the worst moment of my life, um, what's, what's it been like to claim that authority or that, or that, or that ability mm-hmm. to, to be that person for someone? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a column called The Obliterated Place. And that was a really hard one for me to write for this very reason you're touching upon. And I think what I've returned to again and again and again in both my work as an advice columnist, an advice giver, and also a writer, like, you know, a writer in any other any other form, is this idea that, like, I've, re- for myself, redefined what authority means. I think so many of us think authority means having expertise, being the voice of wisdom, the voice who knows, the one who has the answer. And what I really believe, sincerely, to my deepest core, is that, that we all have the authority to speak the truth, okay? And so when I, whenever I write anything or respond to a letter from someone, I'm speaking only from my deepest truth. 
And if and if the person who receives that finds that 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 resonates, that's beautiful. And if they don't, that's also fine. That it, that I'm only one voice among many potential voices who could seek to console that man mm-hmm. who was grieving. It was actually his son. He was grieving. Oh, son. And um, you know, so I just decided to. You know, that's a very scary thing to actually do. Yeah. It's it's actually a really scary thing to do. Yeah. To just say, you know, I can't help you. Because the thing is about losing someone who you really love is the thing you, what I know through my experience with my mom is the only thing I actually want is my mother back. Mm. And that is the only thing that nobody can right. give me. So I will never get what I want. And that's what that man wanted too. He wanted his son back and mm-hmm. I could not give it to yeah. him. But what I could give him is the, the reminder that he's not alone, that other people have also experienced this kind of loss. Yeah. And that, that one way that I've consoled myself in my life is to say, okay, here's this, this ugly pit of shit and I'm going to make something beautiful from it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to grow something in that. Because the thing about shit is it's like the most fertile stuff. <laughs> It's incredibly <laughs> fertile. Like, actually, it is. Literally, it's fertile, you know? And so plant a seed there and let it grow mm-hmm. and see what happens. And what happens is the nature of your grief changes yeah. because then, you know, what you're, able, what you're holding is, you know, something ugly and something beautiful. Yeah. Did you ever hear back from him? Yes. Yeah. How, yeah. how was he doing? You know, I've heard from him. What's so interesting about the comp? So he's doing fine. Yeah. I mean, he's... Of always course, going to be suffering. Always, right, of course. He's always going to be suffering. But, you know, one of the things that I that has been the most fascinating and rewarding about, about this experience, you know, people always want to know, did you hear from that mm-hmm. person? Because all those readers out there, who they are, are empathizing with is that one man. Yeah. But what I realized is, so I heard from him, yes. I also heard from thousands of people who have lost a child yeah. who said thank you. Hmm. And so I wrote the letter to him, but it was for all of them. Yeah. And, and I think that that's... That's the power of doing something like an yeah. advice column. I realized I was, you know, trying to to speak of our deepest suffering um, in a very intimate exchange between me and one other person, but in like a, a public, like in the town square. It's like therapy in the town yeah. square. You know, <laughs> if you and I right now were surrounded by this auditor, we could have 10,000 people around us. Right. And you could tell me, uh-huh. I know this for sure, if you were brave enough to tell me your biggest problem, your biggest struggle your sorrow, your secret, yeah. whatever, if you were brave enough to tell me that and we discussed it, there would be so many people around us who would be weeping and crying yeah. and cheering and feeling and feeling like they were you. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to ask on, on that note about sort of the personal resonance of the, of, 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 of the columns you wrote, and I, I want to get to the, the podcast in a minute, but I think a, you know, another favorite of yours was the, the ghost ship that didn't carry us. And um, you wrote, I'll never know and neither will you of the life you don't choose. We'll only know that whatever that sister life was, it was important and beautiful and not ours. It was the goat ship that didn't carry us. There's nothing to do but salute it from the shore. And that was such a lovely piece of writing. That was about the choice about whether or not to have, to have children. Yeah. Um, but I'm wondering, and you have children, and, but I'm wondering, are there ghost ships for you? Are there experiences that you salute from the shore? Oh, yeah. Not having kids. Oh, really? I'm sure. Right. I mean, I love my I love my kids beyond words. And I'm just, you know, I, I, that's, I wanted that. Mm. I'm so glad I have that. And that doesn't mean that I, that I don't also sometimes talk to my husband about, like, you know, this, this other kind of life that we could have had if we'd chosen not to have kids. My husband's 
a documentary filmmaker. Um, to be an artist is is so utterly demanding in terms of like the way that you need to engage not only with the world but with silence mm-hmm. and contemplation and concentration, the ability to work for days and weeks and months on end in a creative project. That is really the way I have worked best. And it is the way I work best. And it's in contradiction yeah. to being a mother. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, yeah, I that go, my ghost ship is like, here I am on the island with all the monkeys, you know. <laughs> and I'm over there looking at all those lovely people in sunglasses and bikinis. Drinking coffee On that other shore. <laughs> They're having so much more fun. But, you know, one thing I want to say about that guy, speaking of, so that mm-hmm. man who wrote to me yeah. showed up at one of my events recently, a little two-year-old baby girl on his hip. And he said, this is my daughter. This is the shore I decided to arrive on. And he said, I feel like you have a part in this. Mm. It's so sweet. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and I think it's, you know, I think it's it's a lovely, uh, a lovely way of, of imagining this too, because I think choice is such a lovely thing, but I think that we can also feel so overwhelmed by our options. And I think, you know, what you offer is the idea that this is the life you make and, you know, you are going to naturally um, yeah. have to let go of some of your options and dig into where you are. Yeah. And I think there's this weird, I, I mean, so much of what's wrong, I think, with our world is about dichotomy. It's about like, it's either this or that, you know. And the, the truth is, it's like, right? I mean, that th- th- some people even listening to this podcast right now will think, Oh my God! She she acknowledged that she could maybe see the advantages of having not ever been a mother. Like, how dare she say that? I mean, like, it's a really dangerous thing for a mother to say. Yeah, maybe it would have been nice not to have kids, you know, because people immediately translate into some kind of like lack, you know, yeah. or like, and and that that there's nothing further from the truth about that. You know, I love my kids, right? But I think that that we. You know, I think that we are always in dangerous territory when we think that somehow there's never going to be complexity. Another, I mean, talk about the biggest, the biggest advice that, that, you know, I'm asked to give is like, how the hell does anyone on this green earth make monogamy work? Yes, I you know, <laughs> and I mean, Perfect how does segue. anyone make monogamy yeah. work? Yeah. And, and the deal is, it's like, you know, part of it working is, is also acknowledging that it's not working all the time, that it's hard. Yeah. You know, no matter how much you love your partner, no matter how, whatever, you know, that you are sometimes going to come up against the limitations of monogamy. And there are limitations of monogamy, even if that's the life you've chosen. It's what I've chosen. Um, It's what I want to do. That doesn't mean that I don't sometimes, uh, you know, think, struggle with that or think about, you know, what it would have been like to, to do something else, you know. And so, you know, I just think that so much we can be so much gentler with ourselves yeah. and others if we allow ourselves to live in a little more gray. Mm-hmm. Is, I'm, I'm so glad you raised that because um, last year you launched Dear Sugar, the podcast yeah. with Steve Almond, the original sugar. Yeah. And it's so lo- the rapport that you two have is, is, is great. Thank and you. One of the, uh, one of the questions that comes up a lot from people is this question around fidelity and monogamy, staying together, making a long-term relationship work. You had Esther Perel on the, Oh, launch. I love her. Oh my gosh. That was, that was, she's terrific. Um, and you've, you, you, and, you and Steve Almond have both talked about the fact that you are in long-term marriages that mm-hmm. are good 
sustaining relationships, but they get hard at times. Mm-hmm. Is there a theme to what you hear from people? Like, are there some sort of, like when people write to you about this, about this issue, um, is there something that is sort of standard across the, across the board around what people are struggling with or? Yeah. Well, and you know, the letters that you hear on the show are just a tiny, tiny percentage of those we receive. We could have the whole, every week we could just talk about you know, <laughs> monogamy and monogamy and relationships. And, you know, it's true. Like it's across the board. Right. Um, it, whether you're gay, straight, wh- 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 like everything, whatever, whatever else, the bi- bisexual, like it's always a hard thing to remain sexual partners and remain sort of erotically awake and alive over many years and especially over many decades. Like this is just universally true, even in good relationships. And I, I think that that's what that I'm driving at here with this gray is like that, you know, sometimes people will say, well, you know, if if there's an affair, it's a sign that that relationship should end, should have ended anyway, and that's not true. Like I think that that's not true. I, I, it's not true in my own life and like the, the the people I know, but even in these letters we receive, like sometimes an affair is an indication that a relationship needs to end. People need to move on and find something else. Sometimes it's an indication that the people involved in the relationship are human beings, you know, yeah, and that human beings have. Um, all kinds, you know, we have all kinds of reasons that we want to have erotic and sexual and sensual experiences with with other people. And, you know, it's no, I mean, I guess I would say that the thing that you just see over and over again is people colliding. Um, you know, they have that reality where they're like, okay, I love this person, but it's hard to stay faithful. Colliding with this idea they had about what love would be, this fairy tale idea of meeting somebody, falling in love, and then living happily ever after. People who are absolutely shocked when they find out a partner cheated on them because they say, well, no, I know this person to be a morally upright, honest, good man or good woman. And one of the things that I'm always saying, uh, you know, to, to listeners or in the column and in my own life too, is like, listen, it's not, I mean, the sad truth of romantic love is that even really morally upstanding people, even people who really care for you, can betray you, especially in this one area. Yeah. This is an area that that we tend to fall down. Most people over the course of their lives are going to cheat and be cheated on. And most of us want to believe that we're the exception. Right. And what I have to say, what I think Esther Perel so beautifully offers, is again saying, okay, take a deep breath. <laughs> Let's just remember how vulnerable, how, how hun- humanly vulnerable we are, how how this is, you know, in some ways, the, these the, the social construct of monogamy, this decision that we've made as a society to love one person for a long time, is at odds with our biology. It is at odds with often the way, like our psyches, the, the, ways, the ways that we need to be validated as sexual beings. And so in order for it to work, we have to really kind of grapple. Yeah. We have to get down there in the mud. And this isn't about a fairy tale. It's about how to live a real life day by day. Yeah. And one of the coolest things, and, and I don't recommend this for couples because I think it's so painful, but I know um, one thing I have seen in those couples where there has been infidelity, when they when they do realize, okay, we want to stay together, we want to heal this wound, that, that, it, that can often, if they heal it right, that can often be a really... Um, amazing source of intimacy between them, that they that it forced them to, to go to a deeper level, yeah. to talk more honestly about um, who they are. I mean, one of the things that comes up over and over again when somebody is betrayed is the person who's been betrayed says, you know, they're astonished. I never knew my husband could sleep with a prostitute. And what I always say is, well, guess what? 
you now know your husband better than you did before. <laughs> and doesn't that right. kind of suck? But isn't that also kind of beautiful? Yeah. You thought that you were married to somebody who did not have the capacity to pay someone for sex. And now you know otherwise. And what that is, is information. And I think that information, when used well, can equal intimacy. So as you said, it's interesting because I feel like the other side, or maybe it's a part of your radical empathy, is you also are no bullshit when you talk to people, that you have an approach that sometimes is, that feels like tough love to to a degree. Um, You know, I think about, um, you know, one of your very, very famous columns when someone wrote you saying like WTF, 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 and your response was, ask better questions, sweet pea, the fuck is your life? Answer it. And so you also... So I want to ask you a bit about that idea of you really want people to take responsibility for their lives, too, and to dig in. And I want to understand how how that fits in with the idea of empathy. Yeah. Well, because honestly, I I think that it's the only way to find any kind of happiness or joy or satisfaction in your life is actually to take responsibility for your life. To finally, you know, and this is what I mean, like, obviously, I know so many things happen to people that are really harmful and really painful. And there are all these reasons that we are afraid to do things or we deny parts of our lives or we we stay over here in this corner instead of venturing out. And I think that all of those things are valid and I have sympathy for people who struggle and who who have to kind of fight a great battle to, to step into the world. But ultimately, the choice not to step into the world is can only be made by oneself, right? Yeah. And so what I say is, okay, I'm sorry this stuff happened, and go go ahead and, 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 and move forward. And, I, and I'm really, when I give that kind of advice, I'm, I'm only, um, I'm, I'm literally like teaching somebody what I, what I learned myself in my own life, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I really had to do that. In that column, that WTF column you referred to, I, what I'm writing about is being sexually abused by my grandfather. Yeah. And it's a terrible thing that happened to me. And... I decided at a certain point in my life that I wasn't going to be defined by the terrible things that happened to me, that I was going to turn that terrible stuff into power, into strength, into something that I owned, that I wasn't going to be somebody's victim all of my life. And I think that the minute that you decide that you make that decision, your, your whole, whole world opens up. I wanted to I wanted to ask you, you mentioned at the top of the interview about the two. There's Cheryl Strait and there's Cheryl Strait. And yeah. I think about the, you know, the, the the work that you put at the beginning of your career where you had the success, you were you you knew you were you were a writer who was writing and, and yeah. doing good work. Um, now that the now that there is more noise in your life, I imagine, that there is, you know, people are waiting to hear what you do next, you are yeah. a figure that's giving advice. Um, how do you find that um, that space and that solitude to do the creative work. Has that become a tension in your life at all? It's the tension in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Because I have my children and I have this enormous career that has taken on dimensions that I didn't ever imagine. And by career, I mean really like this just public life, public speaking, talking to you, doing the podcast, you know, just all all of the, the, the new new faces that I have in the world uh, that are very contrary to that woman alone in a room writing a book. Yeah. And so I'm trying to figure that out. I don't know. 
I don't. I need to write to Dear Sugar. I was going to say, who do you, who do, like who's your who's your Dear Sugar? Who do you go to? You know, I mean, one of the things I say over and over again as Sugar is that to, to people who seek advice is I say, you know, you know the answer. You do. I, I really believe that most of us know. We most of us know how to actually solve our problems, and I know, I know how to get back into that room. But there are all these barriers between me and my ability to do it. And so I'm working on it. Yeah. I mean, one of them is for me, like a huge thing lately is just saying no. Because so much of my life, I was such a scrapper for so long. I so scrambled my way, you know, to where I am that it was always about saying yes. You know, I, I just always about saying yes to everything, to every opportunity kicking every door open and running through it. And now it's the reverse, uh, doing, you know, having to sort of shut those doors and turn away from opportunities and say no and disappoint people, which is enormously hard for me to do. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because I do think that there, there, there's a quality of, of, you know, women like yourself or Elizabeth Gilbert, oh, people yeah. who have this real um, connection and trust with their, with their readers and their audience. Um, and I think it's, it can sometimes be a female thing too, that there is the expectation that you are, emotionally available to carry this emotional load for, you know, and do you experience that sometimes as maybe not necessarily a burden, but maybe as a weight or an obligation? Absolutely. And I think that that being female has everything to do oh, with so? this challenge. I'm, well, just, you know, women are supposed to be the givers, the nurturers, and especially a woman like me, you know, because I am naturally that, you know, my natural inclination is to give and to help and be part of things and to and, and to say, I want to support this or that. I mean, those that's those are real things in me, and they're real things I value in others. I, I value generosity and kindness. And, you know, again, though, what I need to sort of figure out is how to be that, how to let that part of my life still thrive and exist, and how to not be devoured by it and to say, now I need to take for myself. A lot of people think that any woman doing anything she wants to do is selfish, yeah. You know, and I don't believe that I've never I've never thought that was the case. And so I'm, I'm just what I'm doing is I'm trying to take I'm trying to listen to the wisdom that lives inside of me instead of all the other crap that also lives inside of me. Yeah. So I can go and write another book. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That was Cheryl Strayed. She's the best-selling author of Wild, Tiny Beautiful Things, and Brave Enough. She's also the co-host of the podcast Dear Sugar Radio on WBUR. And speaking of podcasts, that's it for the first episode of Up Talk. We want to know what you think, so please send us your feedback. You can visit us at chatelaine.com slash uptalk. Follow us at Chatelaine on Twitter and Facebook for more info and updates. And if you like what you heard, subscribe to Up Talk from Chatelaine on iTunes. I'm Rachel Giza. Talk soon.